welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. This evening we continue our journey with the whole area of mental health. With the, with the, our aim over these three weeks, if, this is, if you weren't here last week, we began it last week by looking at the whole area of suicide. And we're going to look at some mental health issues again this evening and next week. But we are going into this series so that people feel free to talk about the whole area of mental health. It is an area that has carried a lot of stigma and guilt and shame, sadly, especially in the Christian church. But over these three weeks, we want to talk about it so that you talk about it so that we become, if I can use the word comfortable, talking about these areas that challenge many of us indeed, that we remove the stigma and the shame around it, that where rejection and isolation have no place to play, or role to play, I should say, in, uh, in our Christian walk. Last week, Sue talked about her own story, a very personal story. She talked about how her husband, Pete, Six years ago, committed suicide. She talked about the build-up to that. She talked about the events as it happened and how she has been coping subsequently. An incredibly brave and, as I said, personal story. Next week, we're going to look at some of the pastoral issues around this. How do we help people? What does it mean in, in practical terms, pastorally, to support those and to support those who carry mental health issues in their families. But today and tonight, we're going to approach it from a a different point of view, and we're going to look at it from a theological and a biblical point of view. Don's going to address some of those questions that we face theologically and biblically. And Jan has been a professional counselor for many, many years, and she's going to speak about depression and anxiety. She would say that she's not going to talk about it in a clinical, from a clinical perspective, but is going to talk about it in layman's terms. I have to confess that whenever I hear Jan talking about depression and anxiety, she does it in such a way that makes it so easy to follow in some ways, if I can use that phrase, not that it's an easy subject, but she puts it in terms that folks like myself who are not trained in that area can easily understand it and follow it, and she is going to be doing that this evening. So guys, thank you. Uh, this is a conversation. This is, I'll be asking them questions, but please feel free to jump in, interject, make suggestions, and uh, we will go from there. Really, I want to start, Jan, by asking you a very simple question. What are depression and anxiety? When we use those terms, depression and anxiety, what is it like to suffer with it? As I said this morning, I read on the BBC netball page uh, that Shani Layton, one of the greatest netball players of her generation, if not historically in the game, retired this July at the age of 30 because of anxiety and depression. She said she could not continue the the challenges that she faced with depression and anxiety and do her teammates fear in the whole area of Nepal. So please unpack what that means for us, what we mean by those terms. Thanks, Chris. I guess I I like to think of depression and anxiety as uh, being like first cousins. They're different, but there are many similarities. Uh, as in first cousins, very similar DNA, but there are differences. So if I think of um, when I'm talking to somebody regards anxiety or depression or consider that there might be that in their background, I'll often ask them about um, what's happening in your body right now. And uh, you would find that always depression sits in the head. So in in the mind, kind of as a cap sometimes, as a um, just 
overarching in, in your head. Anxiety tends to sit, I guess, in your stomach, in your chest, and sometimes in your throat. So um, for those of you who struggle with depression and anxiety together, then you've got a double whammy, and a lot of people do. Um, if we think about what depression looks like, I th often think of Winston Churchill who popularised the term the black dog and talking about the black dog came to the door and I can't stop the black dog from being with me. And so when I think of depression, I think dark, I think black, I think uh, dark moods, heavy moods, a real... Sorry. Thanks, Don. A real heaviness, um, despair, uh, loss of hope, uh, loss of interest. A lot of people find that they used to be really interested in different things and suddenly that interest in whatever it was, whether it be a hobby or a sport or even their family, they've just completely lose interest. They have uh, low energy and low self-esteem. Um, there's no longer pleasure in anything that used to give them pleasure before, as I said. And often, if I think of, again, f a fuzzy or a foggy head. Um, now, with anxiety, it tends to be a pervading sense of worry or concern that people just cannot stop. They cannot control it. There's a lot of negative thinking that goes on with people who struggle with anxiety. Uh, panicky or panic attacks are a feature of anxiety and a, a lot of tension and tightness in their, in their body. A, a lot of things um, like play around in their mind all the time. They cannot control their thoughts. Negative thoughts just replay consistently and constantly. Uh, and also those who struggle with anxiety found, find it really, really hard to concentrate. And so, as you, if you hear both of those things, depression and anxiety, it's a, it's a terrible, terrible thing. Just reading, just reading around this subject a lot over the last few weeks, I found this book by Amy Simpson, The Troubled Mind, incredibly, incredibly helpful. Uh, and she talks about uh, mental illness, and I just want to quote what she says here. Um, mental illness is a robber. It robs suffering people of at least a small piece of who they are even during a short-term illness. And it robs the people who, live the, who love them and the world of healthy, clear-eyed, and beautiful personalities made in the image of God. It robs families of life-giving relationship with people who always love them back. And it replaces those relationships with deep sadness over the new reality. You think that's a good summary? It's an incredible summary. <coughs> Don. How does this fit, really, for us uh, as Christians? How does, what does it mean for us in this whole era about anxiety and depression? You know, Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7 says, Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Surely, at first glance, it means that we have the answer right here? Or is that a little bit too simplistic? Mm. Um, I, as you say, at, fir at first glance, I, I think the danger, however, is to assume that 
the ordinary garden variety of worry, you know, the concern about perhaps a wayward child or how you're going to make the next mortgage payment or, you know, the possible, the possible prognosis regarding an illness. Th those things we, we all face and there is the possibility that we can be consumed with uh, worry and anxiety concerning those things and I think the exhortation of the scripture is not to give place to, to that kind of worry. However, I think the experience of clinical anxiety is a different animal. Um, one comes knocking at the door, the other comes as a tsunami and washes your house away. Um, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, I would have been tempted to have used that scripture for people struggling with anxiety. Um, but then my wife Karen had an operation about uh, 10, 12 years ago uh, on her stomach, which was a very it was a traumatic operation, it went wrong, and as a result, Karen suffered from uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and an anxiety associated with that, that when it came was just, um, it wasn't like the garden variety worry, it was much, much more like a tsunami. And so our experience of that um, really made me think a lot about that passage. Mm. It was a passage, thankfully, that I never used during that time and would never use it with somebody who's struggling with clinical anxiety. Mm. I think you're dealing with different things. But I would say that in the generation that you and I started out pastoring sort of 30, 40 years ago, that yeah. was used to, I was going to say bludgeon people some yeah, way. It absolutely. was used... And it, uh, came across as a bit of a curse, really, if yeah. you didn't move away from that. Sure. Yeah, it was used as a blunt instrument. And, and for, to use that kind of passage with somebody who's struggling with clinical anxiety is just to increase their shame and guilt. Yeah. And it really doesn't, it doesn't help. We, yeah. we have to come at it from a different perspective and in a different way. One of the things that, if I can put it like this, that is encouraging is the, the biblical characters that we find who, I don't know if they suffered with depression or anxiety, but they definitely suffered with something. There was definitely, I would say, well, let's use those phrases. There was definitely anxiety or a depression. We can look at Moses, Elijah, mm. Jeremiah, Jonah, Paul. Yep. What do you glean from Scripture from I, them? I, th I think one of the things is that as a Christ follower, you're not immune from these things. I mean, that's a pretty, that's a Hall of Fame list, yeah. you know. Um, Moses in Numbers chapter 11 is praying that God would kill him. Uh, Jonah, sitting under the good tree, wants to die. Elijah, the same. Um, I'm not so sure about Paul. In, one, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, it says that he despaired even of life itself. And I'm, maybe it's stretching it to suggest that he was suicidal, but he was under incredible pressure at that mm. point, and perhaps thinking um, that he, he couldn't go on. And, you know, these are dedicated uh, followers of God. So, so the whole idea that as a Christian you should be exempt from these things is probably completely unrealistic. Mm. Life happens to us all. Uh, we live in a broken world. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. And the fact that you might be battling with, um, with depression or and or um, clinical anxiety doesn't invalidate the fact that you love God and are loved by God. Um, that, that it comes knocking at our doors. Mm. Many of you will know the name Rick and Kay Warren. Yeah. Their, their eldest son, Matthew, committed suicide, was it two or three years ago? Yeah. And a lot of the stuff that they write around uh, suicide is really, really helpful in depression. <laughs> and um, I think it's Kay Warren writes that when I mean, we live in an evil world, and evil is going to come to us all whether we like it or not. And mm. so we've 
just got to deal with it. Mm. And that's, we've got to live in the light of that. We can't right. do deals with God. The, the interesting thing is we, we don't think twice about the fact that some of us might suffer heart disease or kidney failure or, you know, we, we're, we're quite happy or not happy with, but we are open to the fact that these things happen to Christians. But when it comes to um, a chemical imbalance in the brain, um, that resulting in clinical depression or anxiety, we seem to treat that differently. Mm. I mean, Karen used to um, sometimes talk, talk about, uh, because as a result of the anxiety, she was on medication and she, she used to joke about taking her mad pills. And I, I really got, uh, I told her off one day, I said, you know, you, you don't talk about your thyroid tablets like that. You don't talk about any other medication like that. You know, the fact that there's chemical imbalance, you know, there's a lack of serotonin or whatever it is happening in your brain, you don't, mm. you know, you, you don't, you, you shouldn't treat that any differently than heart medication. You don't balk at taking heart medication. And yet Christians do. And, and there is a stigma attached. There's some kind of uh, thought among us that, that if we were better Christ followers, those things wouldn't happen to us. Mm. And I, I, truly, it's, it's unrealistic. Well, look, I come on to, to medication again, because I think that's a, that's a huge area. Jan, in your experience, share why you think there is so much shame and stigma and, and even guilt around the whole mental health issues, both in uh, our culture but also in our church culture. Well, I guess, um, as John alluded to before, if we were having this discussion 10 years ago, in actual fact, in church we wouldn't be, to be honest. Um, it would be way worse than what it currently is. So I guess I'm grateful for the fact that in our society today, and in church today, we're at least talking about this stuff and, uh, and being honest about it. But then I guess we're forced to, to be, to be honest. Uh, it's pandemic in our society. It's the common cold of mental illnesses, depression and anxiety. And there won't be one person in this audi auditorium tonight that won't be in some way touched by some form of mental health issue, whether it be themselves, whether it be a family member, a friend or a colleague, we're all going to know somebody that is impacted by anxiety and depression or depression. So in terms of stigma and shame, I think we're improving as a society, we're definitely improving as church. But if I think of our Oh, I think of New Zealand colonised by a warrior people and by pioneers. We absolutely admire our number eight wire uh, mentality. We love the she'll be right, I can do it mentality. That's part of who we are as a culture. And I think in some ways that doesn't help us to think, well, you know, when we can't talk about this stuff because she'll be right, mate, I'll be fine. And the reality is that, uh, that, that we're not doing okay in this area. We're not doing fine. And so that's why I guess I'm so grateful to be part of uh, an opportunity like this, to be part of a church like this where we are, we're talking about it. We're getting it out there. There's so many people in our society that are needlessly suffering because of stigma and because of shame. And I don't want any of us to be part of that stigma and shame, uh, putting it on to somebody else, if you like. Mm. So I don't know if that answers it. Um, yeah, you, well shared, you shared with me, um, was it something off stuff or, or a couple of months ago, and you 
give us the highlights of what this guy who was 43 successful so you, you really tell us about it I was really impacted by this and, and a, a Kiwi guy 43 a, a professional and this is an excerpt um, from what he wrote he talked about I am an expert at masking my illness to the point where my loved ones only know that something is up when I am at my very very worst I'm always telling people to talk about their depression, to share their fears and sadness alike, to be vulnerable. But yet, my sickness controls me so much that I isolate myself from good people. So I don't have to talk about myself and my own demons. We cannot fix what we won't acknowledge. Talk, people, please. If you suffer from depression, talk. Be vulnerable, be intimate, tell another person that you are scared. It's powerful stuff. Don, you've been pastoring 40 years. Do you think there's been a little bit of a shift? Is this um, people more willing to talk about things now than perhaps they did when you started off in ministry? Um, yeah, I do. Um, I, I would also say that I think it's um, you, you said a pandemic uh, or an endemic. I, I see a massive increase. Um, I, I don't remember that being the case in my early years. Um, however, having said that, when it was there, we didn't deal with it well. Um, we tended to be, I mean, coming from a Pentecostal background where we had discovered something of the presence and power of God, we tended to imagine that whatever it was that you were troubled with could be prayed away. Mm. Uh, and uh, if you just said hallelujah enough times, it would, it would go. And, and so I, I actually I shudder to think how much damage we did to people who were true depressives in those days because mm. we didn't know how to handle them. Mm. We tended to jump straight to the demonic oh. and uh, rebu <coughs> rebuke it away. What are the, just talking about church and, and, and ministry and changing, one of the things that Sue mentioned last week in regards to Pete was <laughs> the importance of living out of um, one's values. Mm. Um, Sue was quite honest with saying that Pete would talk about accountability and honesty and openness, and he would expect that of the people that he pastored, but he wasn't those things himself. And she just said, but living out of our values mm. and what we believe is actually so important. What are your thoughts around that? Because <laughs> values are so important to us here at Gateway. Yeah. I mean, for those of you who come to Gateway regularly, you know that we, we talk about four key values. The value of uh, people, the value of integrity, the value of vulnerability, and the value of authenticity. And we don't have time to unpack those uh, fully, but there's two that really, I think, dramatically impact on this whole issue of depression, anxiety, um, mental uh, illness among us. And those are the fact that um, the church isn't should be an incredibly safe place because we value people, all kinds of people. People with mental illness, people who are struggling, people who are broken, they should be able to come to church and, and sense a degree of safety, a degree of welcome. Uh, you know, the reality is in most of our society when people manifest uh, issues of mental health, they, they are more often than not shunned. And the church can't be like that. 
and I understand how difficult it is, you know, when somebody comes in and they are really presenting mm. some mental health issues. Um, it's, it's difficult to know how to deal with them. Sometimes they can be embarrassing or you can be embarrassed by them and, um, and the tendency can be to shun them. Um, as a community, we can't do that. We have to be a welcoming community. We have to acknowledge that God loves people, and because he loves people, we must love them too. And sometimes it will put you right out of your comfort zone. I, I was telling this story this morning. I hadn't planned to tell it. I didn't even <coughs> think about it until I was halfway through talking. But um, I was in a fish and chip shop a couple of months back. Um, I went down to get some fish and chips on a Friday night for the grandkids. And, and it was and the place was packed. And there was people standing just <coughs> waiting. And a guy suddenly burst through the door. Hello, everybody. You know, and it's like everybody turned. And, and I mean... Pretty sure we were dealing with a mental health issue, but it was just incredibly interesting in terms of how we responded. Yeah. Everybody kind of looked down or looked away, and nobody was engaging this guy, and he's talking at the top of his voice. And I, I don't know, for some reason, I just thought, engage him. So I said, g'day, mate, how are you doing? You know, And suddenly this conversation <laughs> is going full on in the chip shop between him and me, um, top of our voices, well, his, his voice at least, anyway, and everybody else either not knowing where to look or starting to laugh. And, you know, I mean, he talked about all kinds of things. I tried to engage him uh, as much as I was able. The, the, the hilarious thing was by the time we had been sort of five minutes into the, into the conversation and under my breath praying that my order would come really, really fast, other people started to get in on the conversation. And all of a sudden, there's probably six or seven other people in the chip shop all inter interacting with this guy. <laughs> I mean, it was one of those crazy moments, but I, I think probably out of it, I realized it, was, it would have been so easy for me not to have engaged, to have just sort of done, done what everybody else did, because I felt completely out of my comfort zone. But the fact that we engaged, he kind of settled, other people entered the conversation, and um, the, the, I guess the atmosphere of acceptance and even um, hilarity, in a good sense, not laughing mm. at him, but laughing mm. with him, it the atmosphere changed. And uh, I, I think sometimes we have to do that. Um, the second value, you know, uh, apart from loving people because God loves people, is vulnerability. And the essence of vulnerability is sharing your story, not just the good bits that make you look good, but the bad bits and the difficult bits and the bits that are hard to tell. Because the reality is we all have those. Uh, no matter how long you've been following Jesus, you know, we, we struggle with a broken world and with our own brokenness. And vulnerability is about being honest and creating an atmosphere of honesty where people can share their hurts, can share their brokenness without feeling like, I can't say that because if I say it, I'll be rejected. John, this uh, whole idea of Gateway and church being a hospital is really important for you. It's something that you're incredibly passionate about, and that comes through who, just who you are. It's part of your DNA, the whole your passion for pastoring people. I'll tell you about that. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> um, when we came to Gateway, it was probably 25, 26 years ago, and at that stage had been in, um, in other churches and 
I'd known Jesus since I was 16, uh, but had come from an incredibly broken, uh, broken background and had always picked up the message, whether subliminally or um, directly, that, you know, you, you're a Christian and you've got Jesus in your heart and, and when you're a new creation, then you're a new creation and all of that stuff that you pick up and so you feel like you've just got to have it all together. And I remember coming to Gateway and thinking, something's different. What, what's, what's it about here that feels different to that? And very, very quickly, just hearing the analogy that Don often used at that stage, that the church was a hospital. And the minute I heard it, I thought, there was something about that that made me feel so incredibly safe and so incredibly valued that I could take time to heal, I could take time to sort myself out, despite the fact that I'd been a Christian for many, many years at that stage, I had time to heal in a hospital. And so the fact that for me, this is a safe place has just meant the world. And it continues to mean the world to me. Um, I remember reading a book many years ago by Larry Crabb, The Safest Place on Earth. And for him, he talked about local church being the safest place on earth. And to be honest, I don't think it always is, but for me here, uh, Gateway has been the safest place on earth and has resulted in the most incredible amount of healing because I've been in a hospital and uh, had the most incredible care. Changing tack slightly, can you just speak to us a little bit about the role of burnout and perfectionism in this whole equation of depression and anxiety leading on the start of the suicide? We, uh, when we were planning for this week, we talked about what part of, obviously, Sue's uh, talk last week was incredibly powerful and there were so many things in there that we could have picked up uh, and we will pick a few more things up next week. But the whole idea of burnout and perfectionism just really hit home because, to be honest, uh, pastoring, we pick up, we, we come across so many situations where people present with burnout um, and the impact of burnout is such that often there's just a complete sense of um, total chemical depletion. Uh, a complete sense of um, running out of steam in a whole emotional sense, a physical sense, and a spiritual sense. And to be honest, again, in our society, we value the fact that we work 24-7. We value the fact that um, we're strong and we've got it together and we're giving everything to our employer and things like that. And I'm, I'm not dissing that, but I'm just saying that God put in place a, a Sabbath for a reason. He put in place rest for a reason. And uh, however you do that, we need to take time out from our 24-7 uh, world that we live in and rest. Or otherwise, to be honest, depending on predisposing factors, uh, burnout is quite a common thing. And when people present with burnout, it's incredibly distressing. We see it way too often, to be honest, and uh, yeah, of, often because of the complete chemical depletion that burnout results in, there's uh, anxiety and depression in the mix that is, takes a long, long time to 
uh, come back from. Mm. I know you both feel very strong about the whole area of medication, that, that we need to, in a sense, go check the doctor, do all that. <coughs> and that, that leads me really into, um, maybe if time permits, we'll come back, I want to ask you about isolation, how that impacts us, but it leads us into uh, the next section. This holistic approach, it's, uh, it's so important uh, and, what, and what we see in, in, in this whole area. Probably when, uh, again, when we were starting off in ministry and still in some areas uh, of the church today is, or if you're ang anxious or depression or even on the scale of suicidal, well, you need to pray more. You need to, there's lack of faith or there's sin in your life. Um, so I called it a hospital pass this morning, <laughs> but can you speak to around this continuum, continuum of um, doctors? We live in a fallen world, you know, when there's some generational issues that we, we need to face up. I mean, because... Suicide, for example, does run in families. Depression does run in families. And then and on this spectrum, in a sense, is what's important, what we feed ourselves, and then the role of perhaps the demonic. It's a huge, huge area. Mm, mm. So there you go, sir. <laughs> um, I think we have got better over the years as a church with dealing with things holistically. Yeah. I think I mentioned before we tended in the early days of my charismatic ministry anyway, to immediately assume depression was uh, demonic. You know, the Bible does talk about a spirit of heaviness and the garment of praise. Put on the garment of praise. Some of you will remember an old song that we used to sing, put on the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And so, so we tended to go to the demonic uh, end of the spectrum, at least in the church I was involved with. Um, I wouldn't do that now. I think um, if somebody came in presenting depression or anxiety, the first question I would ask them now is, have you had a medical? Uh, what's going on in your life? Um, what the situation that you've been involved in? Um, as, as the questions uh, got deeper, I might ask things like, um, is there a history of occult involvement? Uh, is there something, uh, you know, like this that seems to um, travel down through your family? And that, of course, may simply be DNA. It may actually be a familiar spirit. And so I think the recognition that all of these things can operate. One of the things with the demonic is it tends to come in on something that's natural and push it further than it actually should go. I remember years ago, Chris, and you might remember this, one of our mentors, Jack Hayford, saying that times of transition in people's lives are incredibly vulnerable, um, whether it be puberty or menopause or other transitional periods. And what the demonic often will do is come in on something where we are incredibly vulnerable and open and going through change and simply push it further than it should go. Yeah. Um, I was very interested when Sue was talking last week about Peter and she, she mentioned the fact that in the latter stages she would feel so oppressed at times that she would actually swap bedrooms. And, um, I, I th you know, it's easy to have hindsight, but I think probably looking back, one of the things that she would say is there was probably a demonic element in that. Now, the, the burnout, the, the depression that Pete suffered was, was probably clinical, probably physically related, certainly related to some of his work habits. But what happens is, is the demonic forces, the enemy comes in on that and then pushes things further. Mm. One of the things I often say about sin is that it takes us further than we meant to go, it keeps us longer than we meant to stay, and it costs us more than we meant to pay. 
And part, the result of that partially is the demonic on those things. And you, I don't need a demon to make me sin. I'm quite capable of doing that by myself, unfortunately. But if I keep going in that area, then you can get something that layers on that and pushes it. Mm. So I, I guess what I'm trying to say, Chris, is that I think you have to approach it holistically. Uh, I don't think it's healthy to go to that extreme and say it's demonic. Mm -hmm. Or go to that extreme and say it's only chemical. It's often a mixture of all of those things. And, and that's where it takes a good counsellor to sit and tease through those things and, and to help people. Mm. John? And sometimes it does take time to identify. Uh, it might be 5% spiritual because you do discover that somebody's been involved in the occult, but you know, it might, might have been slight dabbling, but there's heaps of emotional trauma in a person's life. Or, and often trauma can be such, especially if there's complicated grief, in other words, grief upon grief upon grief in a person's life, then literally you can um, end up with clinical depression or anxiety as a result. It's just important to ask yourself the question, how much of this is chemical or physical? How much is situational? Uh, again, situation with trauma, with grief, with loss of work. Um, how much is hormonal, as, as in the chemical thing? You know, if you've got prenatal, postnatal depression, massive issue, you talked about adolescence and uh, menopause, those transitional kind of things, Don, all of those make up a massive mix, if you like. Mm. You know, it's interesting that the story of the Good Samaritan where he was wounded and, uh, and you know, the, the Good Samaritan, the, the guy comes along, the Good Samaritan comes along, helps him, puts oil and wine into his wounds. I think the Greek word for wounds there is the word from which we get our English word trauma. So, so we are dealing as a result of that person being mugged, robbed, uh, the traumatic experience. It's way more than physical. I mean, I suspect that man's physical wounds probably healed relatively quickly. However, the emotional trauma that can go along with something like that sometimes never gets addressed, never gets dealt with. And it's in on that that both the chemical imbalances and even the demonic can come and start to ride. So, you know, some, some people who have been through traumatic experience and people tell you, oh, get over it, that was four years ago. Not helpful. Not helpful. No. Unless the wounds are healed, they can go on affecting you for many, many years. Uh, I guess we, we hadn't planned to do this, but the whole idea of post-traumatic stress that you alluded to with Karen before with surgery, and that's something, uh, the whole PTSD thing is something that uh, we're going to probably get to talk about next week as well, I hope, but many, many people in this room will know what it is to suffer from PTSD as a result of uh, sexual abuse, as a result of other forms of trauma in their background. And again, they may present with uh, anxiety symptoms or depressive symptoms. When you get below the surface and, and hear the story, you will hear incredible story of trauma. Mm. and the fact that for many, many years people have been struggling with PTSD as a result of undealt with trauma. Mm. Actually, personally, I just think that holistic approach is so important in the, in the whole spectrum. Um, I mentioned uh, this morning that 
at the end uh, last week, someone came to me and they were quite agitated about the fact is that I'd allowed Sue at the end of what she was saying about the whole era of medication. She was saying, well, I got prayed for and I was instantly delivered. Mm. And I said, well, I, ne- I didn't say this, but I nearly said, good for you, sweetheart. Yeah, yeah. But no, that no. doesn't happen that often, let's be honest. Nice to be you, sucks to be the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, but I think that holistic approach is so, so important. Yeah. Just, just want a couple of things I want to touch on before time runs out. Jan, just again, talk a little bit about that sense of isolation. I think, again, as in burnout, uh, things like isolation is just another of those themes or factors that uh, counts so much and contributes so much to this whole area of uh, anxiety and depression. Uh, As we know that we have an amazing, uh, huge issue in our society of uh, rural men in particular, who take their lives, who have huge issues with depression, and a lot of that can be uh, about geographic isolation and just being isolated because they work on their own so much. Um, Teenagers uh, have huge issues with isolation. Um, I remember a young woman coming to me not that long ago uh, and who was waxing lyrically about the hundreds and hundreds of people who were her Facebook friends. And to be honest, I saw red, and uh, I can be blunt, not often. <laughs> and I just said, well, what do you need me for then? And to be honest, I felt like it was the right thing to say, as I'm making excuses for my bluntness. And she just looked at me with kind of, And it was like, they're not friends. They're on Facebook, but they're not friends. You have got nobody to talk to. You are completely isolated. And the reason she had come to me was because she felt that isolation so keenly. And frankly, it broke my heart and it annoyed me as well because there was that sense of um, living in a false reality that I've got all these friends, but really, she had no one to talk to. And so our society, in many ways, social media, I think, perpetuates that isolation. Um, Isolation, well, there's a lot of reasons for isolation, including trauma, including pain. Uh, Those with depression and anxiety get even more isolated again because they don't feel that people understand or or realise what's going on for them. But it's a huge factor in our society that does contribute to anxiety and depression. Show me that piece of paper. I I had this on email this week, and uh, you've had it, I think, prior to that. Somebody's uh, at Gateway um, sent this through. They said that we could use it, and I just thought, we'll leave it here at the front after, and it just said, (coughs) just for you guys, it says, unexpected, unimpressive, unplanned, unclean, unwanted, unsuccessful, unattractive, unloved, undesirable, (coughs) unimportant, unacceptable, unwelcomed, unlovable, unnecessary, and everything. And this was someone who who suffered in this area and uh, allowed us to use it. But that real sense of not being worth anything, that real sense of isolation, being nothing to anybody at all. And I just think that's just a really powerful sort of imagery. And uh, we're just going to leave that at the front if you want to come and have a look at it or just ponder on it. 
Don, one question that we have to, uh, have to ask is, uh, as we start to bring this to a close, in some traditions, the whole area of suicide is seen as the unforgivable sin, and a lot of people struggle with that, especially when they've lost loved ones, or even if they're contemplating it themselves. What happens? Is it the unforgivable sin? Mm. That comes out of Catholic theology. It came, I think, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas. You know, His theology was basically um, that if you go into eternity with unforgiven sin, then there is either a time of purgatory or literally hellfire. And obviously suicide being um, the nature of the, of the sin that it is, uh, is you can't repent. And so for many people, sin, uh, suicide then became the unforgivable sin. Uh, I mentioned this morning that I did a funeral um, for a, a, a Christ follower who in a moment of incredible darkness took their own life. And I talked about the possibility of hope and somebody came up to me afterwards and said, no, I don't think you should have said that. There isn't any hope. The Bible says that uh, he who destroys the temple of God, him will God destroy. And this man destroyed his body, the temple of God, therefore, you know, ipso facto, they must be going to go to hell. Um, and I, I actually said to them, well, actually, that passage isn't talking about an individual body. It's talking about the corporate body. It's talking about um, the person that destroys the church, uh, not, not a physical body. And uh, I do believe uh, suicide is a sin. Uh, I believe it aborts and cuts off, obviously, possibilities, potential, the purpose of God that cannot be restored. And so with suicide, there is significant loss, but I don't think it's the unforgivable sin. Jesus said the unforgivable sin was blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, not uh, taking one's own life. Uh, I, However, um, I mentioned this morning, I, I, I sometimes hear people talk uh, about a suicide victim going from the darkness that they experience straight into the hallelujah chorus, you know, yeah. into glory. And that I, I wonder, not that I'm suggesting there is some kind of uh, purgatory, or, but, but, you know, the Bible does say that Jesus will wipe away all tears. And I wonder that in those moments there won't be some tears shed that he, uh, that he will wipe away. The sense of being in the presence of God and having cut off something of God's purpose, having lost something of what he planned for you, I think will be a moment, perhaps a very brief one. I, I mean, I don't know how time works in that. And I'm, you know, I'm supposing here, I don't know. But I wonder if there won't be a moment of incredible remorse and maybe some tears that he will wipe away before the hallelujah chorus commences. Um, I, I would say it is sin. Without, without doubt, suicide is sin. However, I would say it's not the unforgivable sin. And I think there are many Christ followers in, in moments of real darkness and depression and where their thinking is distorted have made a terrible choice. Mm -hmm. And I think the mercy of God is easily uh, sufficient to cover poor choices. Thank you. Musicians, please. Time is rapidly going. <coughs> I'm just going to ask Jan in a, in a couple of moments just to, to wrap up with some thoughts around hope. Over these three weeks, we're just touching incredibly lightly on the surface of a huge issue. I mean, there are things that we wish we could cover at greater depth, things that we haven't even begun to touch. And it's all to get folks to start to talk about it, that it's okay to, to feel like this and uh, invite people to come alongside you. 
John, talk to us about hope. Is there hope? Without a doubt. Uh, Chris had initially said, hey, just come up with a story of hope. And, and the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, we have a myriad of stories of hope. And so it would not be doing justice to hope just to tell you one story in terms of how we, uh, we work pastorally here and what we see in terms of uh, people coming through anxiety and depression, for example. But I guess initially, I've, just to be, state the obvious, I'm just so grateful that I know God and that God is the source of our hope. And Jeremiah 21:11, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. That is God's voice into each one of us. I think the reason there are so many stories is that God is, God is a healer. He's Jehovah, Rapha, the God who heals. Exodus has many uh, verses actually, but he's the God that heals us. And from depression and anxiety, for example, it's normally a process. We don't see many miracles, to be honest, but we see many, many healings. And healing is a process. Um, how does God heal? He uses and gifts professionals, GPs, psychiatrists, psychologists, anyone in the medical profession. He gifts counsellors. I'll never forget when uh, when I was a new counsellor, new, new to it and feeling quite sort of, hey, this is amazing. And somebody saying, well, all, you know, all counsellors do is that they hold people till God comes. I was a little bit affronted and then thought about it and thought, I can do that. Actually, that's amazing. What better calling to hold people until God comes? And then the more I thought about it, the more I think, you know what, that's the role of each one of us, is to hold people until God comes. For some here who are struggling with deep, deep levels of depression and anxiety, God seems so incredibly far away. And I hear, you know, I'm up here and saying, God is our only hope, and He is, and He does heal. But there will be some here who will think, well, that's not going to happen for me. But God will heal. He is our only hope, and for those of us who know that, our job is to hold others until God comes into their lives. Our job is to have the quick chat or the smile and the check-up, how are you going, dropping off a meal, giving flowers, whatever it takes to let people know that, you know what, I care. And community is so important and being part of a community like we've got is so important. But each one of us have a part to play, not just the professionals, not just the practitioners, each one of us are hope givers. And uh, I want to give hope to you today to say that you can be a hope giver for someone else. John, John, thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.